Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone, welcome back to Walking with Freya. So several months ago, I got a message from a fellow PWS mom. She had been listening to the podcast and sent me a message on Facebook. And it turned out that we have a childhood friend in common because we are from the same part of the country. So that was kind of cool. We corresponded off and on for a few months. And finally, we had the opportunity to meet each other over a phone call. There were many things that endeared me to Lori. One and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, is her accent, because it reminds me of home. I have been living on the West Coast now for uh, just shy of 20 years, and my accent is pretty much gone. But seriously, for days after our interview, and even, even writing this intro, It kept uh, creeping back into my conversations and into my head. So it's one that's there. I also go back home at least once a year. So I'm I'm around it. It's not just the accent, though. And maybe it's because this is uh, part of the country where I grew up. And like I said, the accent reminds me of home. But but there's more than that. There is a certain friendliness and like this this its own brand of open honesty. I realized while preparing this episode that I have spent half of my life in one place and the other half in another. So I spent the first 19, 20 years of my life in Southern Indiana, and then I moved to the West Coast, and I've been here ever since, and I'll be 40 next year. So it's taken me quite a few years to feel like I understand people raised on the West Coast. It was definitely something that I noticed more when I moved here I felt like I could really pick west coasters out of a crowd (laughs) maybe not out of a crowd but uh, you know after talking to them there there are just differences in in where we're raised and there are many people now in my life that I love that were born and raised on the west coast but there is and this this kind of reminds me of the special needs community in this way that I do tend to feel a certain kinship to people from the Midwest, especially even if I just meet them. And many of my friends out here in California are transplants from uh, the Midwest and from the uh, East Coast. And I just think it's interesting how we can be in a way, I mean, we are products of, of where we come from and we don't have to be, you know, but it's always kind of there a little bit. So um, none of this really has to do with the episode today. <laughs> it's just it's something I was uh, pondering on. And it's part of the reason why I did enjoy speaking with Lori so much. But enough about that. Um, Lori, with 
uh, her various degrees in education and special education, came into the Prada community with the birth of her daughter, Aubrey, who is now nine. She tells a story of why receiving the news of a Prada diagnosis was a blessing. She also walks us through the beginning time with Aubrey, finding out that she herself was pregnant again, taking care of a sick mother, and then her own diagnosis of breast cancer. We discuss Aubrey's scoliosis and what led to their decision of surgery and the ways to approach the education team working with your child. There is an admirable strength woven throughout this conversation. The strength of Lori's faith, her family, her relationship with her husband, and the positivity with which I imagine she approaches most things in life. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. But before I head out, a brief reminder to please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on whatever app you use. It's totally free. Also, take a moment to rate the podcast, write a review, help it be seen out in the world, and tell a friend, tell a family member, spread the word. Also, check out the Walking with Freya Facebook group. You can send me a request uh, to join, and if your presence in the special needs community is traceable, then I will accept you. If not, send me a brief message, and I'll get you in. I'd love to see more activity in that space. So when you come in, please introduce yourself and anyone that's in there, please feel free to start a conversation, get some topics going. I try and get stuff going every now and then. And, uh, you know, if you feel inspired, please, please jump in there. Also, if you are inspired to tell your own story, which I hope that you are, please email walkingwithfreya at gmail.com to uh, reach out to me or head to the website and fricky.com a-n-n-e-f-r-i-c-k-e.com that's my website that hosts this podcast and the reason it's not called walkingwithfreya.com is because I'm also a writer and an author and I couldn't afford two different websites <laughs> so I had to put them just both together and so the walk, you can go to com and you'll find, it's very obvious, you'll find the Walking with Freya page and there is an email form that you can just fill out and that'll get to me about the podcast. And while you're there, you can also check out some of my poetry, some of my short fiction. There's some YouTube videos of my poetry performances. And you can also read the first chapter of my novel, The Orchard's Descendant. <laughs> so that's all there in one place. Also, I will be coming out next week with another episode. I know I usually come out every two weeks, but I'm putting out a bonus holiday episode. So be looking for that if you're interested. It is going to be the lecture, if I could call it a lecture, um, the talk that I did in the language and development class and speaking with future childhood educators and therapists and people that will be working with our children. And so there is a bit in there about the importance of them and their role in our life. I hope that everyone had, is having, and will have a beautiful, lovely holiday celebration. For me, I resonate with the solstice and the celebration of life in the middle of winter. We also continue the Christmas traditions of my youth. So there will be a beautiful blend of caroling on Christmas Eve, and we do have a tree. I, however, since I 
do like to honor life in the middle of winter. I never, we never cut down a tree. It's always a potted tree. And this year my husband chose a redwood, which is absolutely amazing and kind of funny because it's, it looks like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. <laughs> and for those of you on Instagram, uh, I put it on my personal Instagram page, but I'll, I'll put a picture of the tree on the walking with Freya Instagram. It's very sweet. It's funny. I, my daughter was a little, my oldest daughter was a little bummed out cause she wanted a big, uh, big sprawling Christmas tree. But like I said, I don't, I don't like to have a dead tree in the house for the celebration. So we have a redwood that while it looks, uh, spindly and sparse will probably outlive us all. <laughs> so, so that's that anyway. Yeah. So I hope that everyone has a beautiful celebration, however you celebrate. So I will be back here next week and I hope that you all will join me. So until then, let's just get into this interview with Lori. And again, thank you all for being here. Okay, so I am here talking to Lori, and Lori is a fellow PWS mom. She has a daughter, Aubrey, who is she still nine or is she 10 now? She's nine. She's nine. Okay. Um, yeah, we've been corresponding for a few months now. And uh, actually, I just feel like she's right outside of my hometown. So hopefully I'll get to meet her someday. And so, Lori, you have Aubrey, who is nine, and she has Prader-Willi syndrome. And yes. uh, you have a few other children. So I'm really excited to talk to you because you also have this extensive background in education, which I think that um, brings a lot, I imagine brings a lot to your life knowledge-wise and experience-wise. Do you want to talk about your daughter for a minute and, you know, kind of tell us about who she is? Sure. Yes, I would love to do that. And you speak up if I leave any holes unintentionally. So Aubrey is nine. My husband and I have four children. We have a 14-year-old son named Ethan. And we have, and Ethan is an eighth grader, halfway through his eighth grade year. And we have Aubrey, who is nine. She started school. I held her back a year so that she could do an extra year of kindergarten. We did kindergarten twice and intentionally. And so she is halfway through her third grade year of school. And then Aubrey has a little brother named Garrett, who is a second grader. And he's eight. And she also has a little brother named Grady, who is four years old. So um, that's kind of the family dynamics that we have. And so you had an, an another one that you have an eight-year-old too. So you had another one right after Aubrey, yeah? Oh, girl, let me tell you. So <laughs> I was a special ed teacher. I am a I, I am a K twelve special ed teacher, and my degree certifications in special education are mild, moderate severe emotional and behavior disorders. I have a bachelor's, two master's degrees, and a doctorate. My doctorate is in educational leadership, but my bachelor's degree and both of my master's degrees are in special education, various areas of it. So when I had, we had one child and I was still teaching in the K-12 setting and I became restless professionally and was interested in continuing my education. And I left 
left the K-12 setting and began teaching at the university setting and at the same time took on um, a special education department, the whole department. I started, um, it was a small university, but um, I took on the whole department and um, all of the undergraduate and graduate special education majors and taught the majority, not all, but the majority of the undergraduate special education courses, started working on my doctorate as a full-time doctoral student and also taught some of the master's level courses as well for special education. So my plate professionally was kind of full. <laughs> and I um, will never forget, I was teaching a night class about um, the course. I don't remember which course it was, but I remember specifically some of the things that we were discussing. And one of the girls gave a presentation on spina bifida as, a, as an assignment in my course. And it was a classroom of young women in college who were mostly single and it just really I don't know standing there in the classroom I immediately started talking to them about the importance I mean I totally stepped outside of my intended discussion for that night and I really started talking about the importance of um, folic acid for some reason <laughs> I don't know why I don't know why I just did I was like you don't understand the importance of proper nutrition and throughout pregnancy. At this point, I had only had one pregnancy myself personally, but I just really started talking about the importance of that just off the cuff. And, you know, even if you're not intending to conceive, if you're putting yourself in a situation where you could conceive, you don't understand the negative implications that can happen if your body's not receiving the nutrition that it should receive. And I'm not kidding. Stuff started spewing out of me that I'm not even real sure where it came from. But it was, I was just so like passionate for like 15 minutes about nutrition for some reason. And when I got home that night, I was like, you know, I really should practice what I preach. And I started taking my prenatal vitamins again. And I found out I was expecting a couple weeks later. Oh, wow. So, uh, no, it was Aubrey. She was, um, so anyway, so that, that's just a random side note that occurred with, at the very beginning of my pregnancy with her. Uh-huh. And so I was very busy professionally and Aubrey was, and personally, because I was working on, I've been, I was a full-time doctoral student as well. And, um, I had Aubrey in the summer and, um, finished up and Aubrey so when Aubrey was born um she was born in the middle of the class I was taken so I mean like I was creating everything in that I could like project wise for that course I was taken and then I had her and I was off for like a week and I was right back at it like I can remember I was nursing her and my mom would like bring me Aubrey and I would nurse her and give her back to my mom and I would keep typing I mean because I was working on coursework and um was she born naturally she was born yeah vaginally I had um she was scheduled my first pregnancy um he was Ethan was born at 36 weeks just spontaneous my water spontaneously broke Uh and I never really had contractions and he came flying out like a bird I mean (laughs) and my doctor was scared that would happen again 
Uh-huh. And so he was a very easy delivery. If all of my pregnancies, all of my deliveries were like, Ethan, I'd had a hundred kids because my body just did it. Yeah. When it was time for Aubrey, my doctor was worried that I would have her like, I don't know, like at Walmart or something. And so we scheduled it so that I would not, um, you know, have a baby at Walmart. So she was born in the hospital. She did not the the delivery was just as routine as routine could be, but she did not want to come out. Um, mm. And retrospectively, you know, it's all easy to connect the dots now. So right. at the end of my pregnancy with her, I was gigantic. I had, no, I wasn't gigantic. My stomach was gigantic. Um, I had a lot of excess amniotic fluid, which we now know why. Um, she, Wait, you, you had excess. Not, I had a ton of excess amniotic fluid. Yes. Huh. Because she wasn't swallowing it. She wasn't processing it like most, most babies do in the womb. So Freya was different. She actually had like, I had very low amniotic fluid. That's actually why they took me in for a cesarean. No, I had excess. I was okay. gigantic and it was all that huh. fluid. around me but you I mean it didn't look like fluid you know like it wasn't like my body was retaining fluid it was just my belly because Uh my body kept producing the amniotic fluid but she wasn't swallowing it and her body I mean she was some but not at the volume that my body was producing it you know she was you know like when they do ultrasounds they Uh look at the baby's kidneys and the stomachs and make sure that they're swallowing and, and she was but she wasn't doing it at the rate as a healthy baby would have and so my body kept producing it and just, she was just like hanging out in there, chilling, loving the water, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> so it also was very inactive, but I just thought, well, every pregnancy is different and, you know, it's just a different baby. I just, I didn't put it all together. She was breech for a long, long time and uh-huh. I had to go in and they flipped her, um, like in an outpatient procedure a couple of weeks before she was born. That was not fun. But they, so they went into flipper and then, and there were a couple of times that they did, um, I guess the non-stress test. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Where they make sure that the baby has so many movements within a certain amount of time. Yeah. And I, she technically, I'm pretty sure technically she failed that, but the person doing the test, I can remember her being like, come on, baby, take a deep breath, move, hiccup, something, come on, I need something in the next 30 seconds so I can count it, come on, come on, come on, and whatever the probe thing is that they use on an ultrasound, you know, the, what's touching your stomach, Yeah. I almost feel like, like she was like really pushing down on my stomach to make sure that she was getting a good view, a good picture. And I wonder that very last moment movement that she was waiting for, you know, did she provoke it unintentionally by poking with that or did Aubrey really move? Was it just the reverberation of that thing hit, you know, questions. Yeah. But you know, would it have changed anything? No, it's water over the bridge. Just go on. But you know, in hindsight, you start looking at all of those things. But anyway, so she finally came out, much to her disappointment. (laughs) She came out. She cried. She was. She had normal APGAR scores. Everything was okay. We went home from the hospital. Um, 
I thought I was nursing her, but I wasn't, but I didn't know she wasn't getting much. Mm-hmm. You know, those first couple of days you're engorged anyway. Yeah. The first couple of days, nothing feels good anyway. The first, you know what I mean? It's just hot, big, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So I went back to my pediatrician. Um, my pediatrician is old school. I am 43 years old, and he has, like, I have people my age who went to him from birth through 18. Okay? <laughs> He's old school. I went to him, and and he, he said, hey, uh, we're going to have to, I need you to come back in two days, and I want you to start weighing her wet diapers. And we went through this whole process. And um, they started, every time we went in, they weighed her naked instead of, like, just in a dry diaper. They started weighing her naked, and then they started weighing her, went through that whole process. And I will never forget the nurse, um, after a couple of visits of going in like that, I turned around and remember, I'm still teaching and taking classes at this point in special ed. Okay. Right. So I turned around and I had Aubrey's stomach was, was on my hand. Okay. Like she's draped over my hand and her arms and her feet are pointing towards the ground. Can you picture that? Yeah. Like, I just had this little infant on the palm of my hand, and I'm holding her like you would hold, like, a tray, like you're getting ready to carry a tray to a table. Like, I'm holding her like that, and her stomach is in the palm of my hand, and her head and her arms are, and her legs are dangling towards the ground. And I was undressing Aubrey, and I, had, I was holding her like that, and I turned around to the nurse, and I had the gigantic burning crocodile tears in my eyes, and I said, something is wrong with her. This is not right. And she could not get Aubrey out of my hands fast enough. She goes, don't you hold that baby like that. And I said, something's not right. I I know, I know, but something's not right. And she knew that something wasn't right and that the doctor was looking up into stuff. And I knew something wasn't right, but we just had not talked about it yet. And the pediatrician came in and I said, I don't know, whatever, the same thing to him. And I said, she's developmentally delayed, isn't she? There's something wrong with her, isn't there? And he said, now, Mrs. Biliak, and if I, you only knew how many times that he's had to say that to me, <laughs> and God love him. But anyway, he said, um, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this. It's too early to tell, you know, she's not growing. She's not gaining weight, and we don't know why. We need to start supplementing. Here's some extra, you know, he gave me all kinds of stuff because um, Infamil is made here in Evansville. I presume you knew that. So there's tons, so that he has tons of samples and tons of all this stuff. He's given me all these things. And um, we tried all the, you know, all kinds of stuff and try this bottle and try that bottle and um, try this nipple. And so anyway, he finally said, Hey, we're going to have to admit her. I want to do a direct admit. We're going to admit her. We're going to watch her intake and kind of see if we can fatten her up a little bit. And in the back of my head, I was like, that's really nice to say that you're trying to fatten her up, but I know that there's something wrong with her. Cause it, so then at this point she's lost all that good baby fat, because right. she's you know, burning it all. And she, I, was, I noticed that she was starting to look and I don't know how else to explain this other than, other than to say she was starting to look chromosome to me her left eye I started to notice was a little bit lower and a little bit slanted and she had a semi-increase in her hand and I noticed her left ear was a little bit lower and somewhat rotated a little bit different than her right ear and I was like oh my gosh so they admitted her to Gateway she was in inpatient there for a week And they did all, I mean, they exhausted every kind of testing that they possibly could. 
And um, a couple of days into it, I can remember my pediatrician came in to see her and I <laughs> said, hey, I know my rights. I request first step. I, I want OTPT speech right now. I want it all to start. He's like, Lori, we have to get a diagnosis first. I said, I know, but I want you to know, I want to document it. I request first step. She's got to have therapy. We've got to start it right now. He's like, we can't start those things. when If she's inpatient for a long time, we can do those things that she's probably not going to be. We'll start them in your home. I was like, no, I want them right now. I know it starts. I mean, I was being so unrealistic. It wasn't even funny. <laughs> but again, hindsight's 2020. Uh-huh. But um, anyway, so they ended up transferring her from Gateway to uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital, where she was again inpatient for a week. And they sent her home with a clinical. Oh, I when she was at Gateway, I also said, I demand a chromosome analysis. I want a microarray fish analysis. I want blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So then she was, so then they transferred, so they did, they drew all that, but, you know, it doesn't result overnight. So then they sent us to St. Louis Children's Hospital where they did an EMG and they sent us home ultimately from there with the same diagnosis that the majority, or not the majority, but that other families have dealt with. They sent us home with a diagnosis of spinal muscular atrophy. She was born at the beginning of July and this was the end of July, we got the diagnosis um, of SMA on um, July 29th, it was my birthday, and they um, sent us home and said, take her home in level because she's going to be gone by Christmas. Oh. That's what they told us. And they sent her home. I had a, I have a niece who is a pediatric nurse, um, and they sent Aubrey home with an NG tube. And my niece was blown away that they sent her home with that. She was like, hospitals don't do that. They usually set a peg or a Mickey button or they, you know, do a, a gastric feeding tube into the wall of the stomach. They don't, they don't send babies home with NG tubes. They don't send people home, period, with NG tubes because they're so uncomfortable and they're so easy to pull out. And I was like, well, I guess that, I don't know why they sent her home with the NG tube. I'm assuming it's because it was such a morbid diagnosis. I don't know. But they sent her home with an NG tube. Again, in hindsight, I'm glad they did because she wouldn't have done, potentially wouldn't have done well with the surgery anyway. But whatever. Again, hindsight, whatever. So they go home. So I'm like fretting. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I have to, like, I immediately went into survival mode. I have to prepare my son to let go of a, of a, of a sibling. I have to prepare my husband for this. I have to prepare my family. My husband is the baby of 11 children. At that point, I had 30 some odd nieces and nephews, some of most of whom we were pretty close to. Like, how am I going to help all these children to prepare for, for something like this? And never mind the fact to prepare myself. That's me. I put myself on the back burner and take care of everybody else. And then I'll deal with myself later. Uh-huh. That's just motherhood, I think. But anyway, that's what I was doing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to call the church and find where, like, where are we going to? Like my husband and I don't have our own like cemetery plots. Like how do I, I mean, just so many things went through my head, you know, so, so, so many things. So anyway, like a week later, the um, doctor calls me from St. Louis Children's Hospital, the geneticist we were seeing, and he goes, Mrs. Ziliak, I am so sorry to have to tell you this. But, okay, wait, I got to tell you this first. In the meantime, I'm praying. My husband and I have a very strong faith. Um, we 
we are Catholic and we are very strong in our faith. And, and the whole time I'm praying, God, just please give me something I can work with. Just please give me something I can work with. I can do this. You have educated me. You have allowed me to be the student I am and the educator that I am. Please just give me something I can work with. And the whole time it's like just one blow after another. And so then this doctor calls me from St. Louis and he says, I'm so sorry to tell you this. Your gene testing is not back yet to confirm everything, but we did get the chromosome analysis. Unfortunately, your daughter is actually missing a portion of chromosome 15. And I am so sorry to tell you this, and we have to await further analysis to return to result, but she either has something called Angelman syndrome or she might have something called Prader-Willi syndrome. And I interrupted him immediately. And I said, sorry, you're sorry? Why in the hell are you sorry to call me and tell me this? Do you understand what this means? This is wonderful. This is like the most perfect news you could ever tell me. Do you understand that she is not going to die? She is not going to die. Did you hear me? She's not dying. And I can tell you something else. You can wait on that analysis all you want, but I know both of those syndromes. I've actually worked with people with both of those syndromes, and I can tell you right now, my daughter does not have Angelman syndrome. She has Prader-Willi syndrome. I can tell you that right now, and God has answered my prayers because he has given me something I can work with. Do you understand me? And if you could have, I wish I could have seen his face on the other end of the phone because there is no telling what he thought. <laughs> but anyway, so then I called my pediatrician immediately. And, you know, when you have a case like this pending, it's really nice to have your doctor's undivided attention. I mean, it, it stinks that you have a situation where you have your doctor's undivided attention, but it's nice to know that you have it. So I could call the office and immediately get him. You know, you don't have to wait and go through this person and go through that person. I mean, you get him. Right. And so I call, I call, it's like, hey, I need to talk to the room like right now. So if you're out of the room, I got to talk to you. So he gets on the phone. Tell him is his Um, I said, hey, listen, you're not going to believe this. Guess what? She has Prater Willi syndrome. She doesn't, she, guess what? You know, and I tell him this whole story. He said, now Mrs. Zilliak. It's certainly possible that you could get the measles and break your arm at the same time. That typically just doesn't happen. She could have SMA and Prader-Willi syndrome, but the likelihood, I said, I know, I know. She probably doesn't have SMA. The gene test didn't back yet. So, (laughs) yes. That's right. She didn't have the measles and break her arm at the same time. She only Uh, had Prader-Willi syndrome. So, yay. Yes, yay. I'm probably one of the people who was like, sweet, I got this diagnosis. (laughs) Tell you something else. One of the reasons I was praying so hard for a diagnosis and for something I could work with is because the gift that I had received in experience prior to all of this, I've worked very close with families who have children with significant disabilities who are undiagnosed or who have some multiple diagnoses like um, that maybe address certain things like some CP, but maybe not a bigger explanation or understanding of why their child has the difficulties that they do. Uh And I knew their pain. I saw their pain. I wore their pain with them, their frustration, their anger, their fears. It was so hard. As a classroom teacher, I took my family into my hands and into my heart, and it we were a family. And I knew what they had dealt with 
that what I had seen, and I just wanted a diagnosis. And I got it. I felt like my prayers were so answered. Not only did I get a diagnosis, I got a diagnosis of something I knew, understood, and I could work with. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of Aubrey's story. So, oh, yeah, then here's the thing. So she's diagnosed. At that point, I switched my dissertation. So the doctoral program I was in, you had to do a dissertation, conduct a nationwide, conduct and publish a nationwide study on something pertaining to your field. And I was, I don't know, a quarter of the way into my dissertation and I chucked it all out the window and completely switched to um, the syndrome. And I ended up completing my doctoral dissertation on the inpatient weight gain of individuals with Prader-Willi syndrome. That's what I dove myself into, what what I ended up diving into myself, uh, to learn more about the syndrome, to give back to the community, that whole, to help prepare us for life with Aubrey, all of that. Uh Um, How how was it doing that research with a baby, though? I mean, because I know that was one of the things they told me in the beginning, like, don't look ahead too far. Just kind of. Oh, I did. I went all the way through it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I. Yeah, I went all the way through it. I found out, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks after that, I'm going to have another baby. <laughs> oh, wow. That's not funny. <laughs> wow, is right. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> so Aubrey was six months old when I found out I was expecting her little brother, Garrett, and they are 15 months apart, and it mm-hmm. was scary, but it could not have been a better again, hindsight, a better situation for us and for our family. He Mm -hmm. has pushed her. He competes with her. Every, I mean, they are your typical sibling rivalry. They go after if one of them has it, the other one wants it. And it doesn't matter what it is. They argue, they bicker, they fight, but they love just as passionately. When Freya was seven months old, I found out I was pregnant with my youngest. So mine are 16 and a half months apart. So everything uh-huh. that you're saying, I know when, when Rona, my youngest started walking at one, Freya was two and a half and she finally started walking. When she saw her yeah. little sister get up and walk, she was kind of like, oh shit, I guess I better start doing that. Uh, no, I'm behind the eight ball here. Yes, I know. That's exactly how it is. So right now, just for example, um, they're second and third grade. Um, Aubrey's doing multiplication, like memorizing multiplication facts in class. And um, Garrett's like, oh, I'm going to memorize those two. Fight over who knows more multiplication facts. (laughs) And I mean, right now I'm like, I'm going to use it. As long as I've got it, I'm going to use it. It's always going to be here. It's been very, now I will also say it's been very hard for Garrett. He doesn't understand that she's different. We tell him, we explain to him, but he doesn't see it. So why with what we're saying makes sense. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So it's it's just been an ongoing topic of conversation. We have given him information here and there when and where we can. I will also tell you that he he shows his love to her better and more often than she shows her love to him. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I would say the same he, for my girls. And he sees it and he knows it. And he thinks that she doesn't like him. Aww. And it stinks. I know. It stinks because I know she does. We're working on that. That is something we're working really hard on. 
And my oldest son, who's 14, he is as athletic as the sun is bright. And my, and, and my, my second grader, Garrett, he, he is very athletic, but he is very uninterested in athletics. He prefers the arts, which is perfectly fine. I mean, he plays sports. They're just not his favorite. And it's perfectly fine. And we nurture his likes, too. It's just he knows that he's not like his older brother, and he know, he doesn't like the things his older brother likes, and he knows that his older sister's not nice to him, and it just stinks. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Then you've got that whole, then you've got that whole uh, deal. I, I try so hard to not make him feel like, you know, he's always in Aubrey's shadow. Try to not make everything revolve around Aubrey and revolve around food and food choices and food security and all that, but it does. Mm-hmm. You know, so you you try to give him as much normalcy as possible and try to, you know, it, it's just, it's so hard that you did one of your blog posts or one of your um, interviews on siblings. And that was, that really hit home with me because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what, you know, we were constantly working on and working with, uh-huh. um, with him. And, and, it, and I tell you what helps this little four-year-old that we have, Grady, he has been, a blessing as well. All my children are blessings. He's been a blessing as well because it gives Garrett someone to connect to and someone to look up to him. And he, you know, really accepts the responsibility of helping with him and helping him understand Aubrey and the syndrome and all of those things. So it's, um, I don't know. So then here's the other thing. When Aubrey and Garrett were uh, six months and 15 months old, my mom was diagnosed with a terminal lung disease. And I am an only child, and my mom lived an hour away. And she was a special ed teacher in our local community. And I had, um, over the course of about the next 15 months, my mom's health declined to the point that she had to move in with us. I had to sell her home. I was her full power of attorney. We had to, I mean, I, at that point, I I only taught for one semester after Aubrey was born because I was pregnant again. And then my mom was diagnosed. I may have taught two semesters. I take that back. But, um, my mom was diagnosed and she had, I mean, I'm taking my mom to all the doctor's appointments in Madisonville, in Evansville, in Louisville, in Lexington. And I'm dragging these two babies with me. You know, I've got this NG tube and this feeding tube oh, wow. and this infant that I'm nursing and my mom and her wheelchair and her oxygen. And I mean, there, I'm sure I, there's no telling what I look like going places. <laughs> I mean, I'm carrying, I'm carrying a double stroller and a wheelchair. I mean, I'm not kidding. I would go to Walmart like that with yeah. a double stroller and wheelchair. I didn't have a choice. I did right. not have a choice. You just put one foot in front of the other and you keep going. And people look at you with that look on their face, like, oh, gosh. I mean, my kids, you, you want to talk about trying to entertain somebody in one of those itty-bitty exam rooms of a physician's office? <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> the hours we spent of their childhood in those rooms, for Aubrey's appointments or for my mom's appointments or whatever. So. Anyway, my mom ended up having a single lung transplant in Louisville, and she was inpatient for six months after her after her transplant. And she came home, 
Tabsa and lived with us for another month before she passed away. And so, you know, that's, that happened through Aubrey and Garrett's childhood. He Uh was three and she was four when my mom passed away. And then, um, did they understand what was happening that she was sick and yes, I mean, especially because she was living with you and then she was gone. That must've been pretty. Yes. Because they couldn't go to the hospital when she was in the hospital because she was so critical they didn't allow children in there, but I mean, she had so much equipment, like her oxygen equipment, her concentrator, her bottles, her cannulas, her tubing, all of that was all over our house. And then um, when she came home after her transplant, she had a trach and a feeding tube that I had to take care of. And she had breathing treatments and she had all this post-op transplant medication that had to be taken around the clock. It was very intensive very intensive and my mom had um all these services you know uh, i don't think she had speech but she had ot she had pt aubrey's you know just coming out of her first steps with otpt speech and all that and then my, and then i've got all this coming in for my mom and nursing coming in and skilled nursing oh. and and an attendant and i mean wow it's kind of boggling to look back on it to be honest with you but um that's what we did and that's how we did it and you just you you just keep going you know you just put one foot in front of the other my husband always uses the analogy of baseball he says Laurie we just got to keep your keep our eye on the ball they're throwing us curveballs you just keep your eye on the ball see which way it's spinning and we're going to foul them off until we hit a home run just keep going just keep going Uh if you only knew how many times we've talked about that so then a couple of years later um my husband so, you know, then we're like, okay, let's get things settled down. Let, let's get everything. We just need a year of normalcy before we make any more big decisions about what's going to happen next. I did end up finishing my doctorate before my mom had her transplant. So, so I was like, okay, let's just, I'm going to maintain staying at home, just be a stay at home mom and help my husband um, ha- owned his own business with a couple of partners. And we'll just, let's just stay the course for a year. Let's have a year of normalcy and see what that's like. And at the end of our year of normalcy, I found out I was expecting again. <laughs> and then we were like, okay, well, let's get this baby born. And then we'll have our year of normalcy. <laughs> and um, that next year of normalcy was when I, uh, my husband and his two business partners ended up uh, selling their business, which is, was a very, a very turmoil filled time for us. And the day we found that, or three days after we found out that was going to be happening, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, that whole, from a year we were dealing with, my, I ended up having a double mastectomy mm-hmm. and, in Indianapolis. So lots of appointments to Indy for me, which is a haul. Mm-hmm. And Aubrey's appointments still, you know, with all of her specialties that she sees then and then trying to figure out what was going to happen with how they what what my husband's next step was professionally and how we were going to move forward so just again it was another curveball or two yeah (laughs) and um did you so you had the double mastectomy did you um do any kind of treatment like chemo or anything that affected your health i did not have to do treatment no um they my lymph node they took my lymph nodes and they were not involved and because they were not involved I did not have to do treatment I did a double mastectomy straight to reconstruction 
Uh-huh. And uh, I started that process at the beginning of, or at the end of March and finished the process in October of that year. My dad lives in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and he was able to come up and help, um, which was huge. And then my girlfriends rallied around me and supported us. And mm-hmm. oh my gosh, God bless my husband just continuing to work and keep the peace and raise these children. And, <laughs> try and provide some sort of normalcy. I mean, what's normal at this point? You know what I mean? Right, There's yeah. nothing normal about everything I've been telling you. <laughs> so, I don't know. Here we are. We made it. You're a powerhouse. I can tell. No, I don't know about that. Well, just to, I mean, you sound so positive and just so really clear-headed about it. And I think um, it's probably what really helped get you through all of this. So, Probably. I couldn't have done, I can tell you right now, I couldn't have done it without my husband. He and I are, um, he, he's everything. He's, he's my, his attitude, his personality, his can do, let's get it done. His work ethic. He is a, he is a German Catholic farm raised dairy farm. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, like you I do. work with your hands, you just get it done. It's just not a choice. You just do it. Right. And you know, my work's not done until everybody's work is done. You know, it's it's that mentality and it's that um, perseverance and integrity and heart and soul that I couldn't have done it without him and without him having the character traits that he does. Yeah. That's for sure what it is. So um, through that time, Aubrey's obviously starting school, going through her early elementary years. And as an educator, I'm sure this is probably what you're most interested in. As an educator, let me tell you how hard it is to go to the other side of the table. Mm. It's hard, or it was for me. It was very hard. Before Aubrey was born, I had served, um, I'd been in several different professional organizations for educators, some of them regular ed, some of them special ed. Um, But there was one organization in particular that I was a part of for serving special educators in rural America. And through that organization, I have met so many people in so many different walks of life and walks of professional experience with special education serving these these small communities, these these rural areas all over our country. And um, had developed some friendships you know, with these people. And that is a lot of what gave me the perspective that I needed in special education to be able to give Aubrey the best that I felt like she needed. Because I'd heard so many different experiences in so many different situations, in so many different, I knew how different it was in different areas as far as services, service opportunities. I know what the law says and mm-hmm. I know what I know how different things are from community to community and from building to building. And um just because of of the opportunities that I've had to hear other people's stories. And when I first entered this world of special education as a parent I was appalled at how much I felt like I was led to um, see school 
as an adversary rather than as a partner. Mm. I know people need that. I know, unfortunately, it stinks and it's not supposed to be like this. And there are situations where it has, you have to go in with your guns blazing. That's a bad analogy for school. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you have to go in, you have to go in very prepared to mm-hmm. fight for the things that you want and need for your child. It yeah, it's like going to battle. That's, that's what I say, like with battle. the school or with the doctors, yeah. like you're going to battle, which yeah, it is. Yes, it you sucks. do. You, I, and I understand that. I get it. But I also feel like sometimes educators aren't given the opportunity to um, be brought up to speed before you even know if you have to put on your boxing gloves or not. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Like, yeah, how, like going, yeah. I, I, Let's go fill them out first and then decide. Right. You know? Yeah. Give them the opportunity to understand exactly what it is you're asking for and what you need and give them the opportunity to give that before you. Um, well, let's create a plan together. I, yeah. I, I guess, okay, here's the deal with me. I feel like in that situation, I feel like it's best to go in and, and say, Hey, listen, here's what I feel like her needs are. Can you help me design a program to help help me understand the way things are in your building and the way you have your current program going so that we can work together to, to figure something out that's going to work for her. Because I can tell you, right, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but it is. You get educators who are unwilling to bend and to move and to change and to adapt. And you can go in and argue and and exercise your rights, which is your full, absolutely fully your right to do. But really, if you have to make somebody do something for your kid educationally because of the law, do you really want that person teaching your kid? Do you really think that kid has your, I mean, do you really think that adult has your kid's best interest at heart and cares and is going to really try? Mm-hmm. I, that's the way I see it. I right. also know and understand. I had a young lady in my class who had Rett syndrome one time, and I was like, "What is that?" And these parents come to you as the special educator. My here I am on the other side of the table. These parents come to you as a special educator, like, "Hey, can you help my kid?" I'm like, "Well, I've got the heart to help your kid, and I'm going to do everything I can, but let me learn about the syndrome first. What uh-huh. do you have? What resources do you have as a parent? What have you been given by your physician?" tell me and so the mom then turns around and gives me what she has which bless her heart it wasn't much and I started doing additional research and additional digging and figuring out more stuff I was like okay here we go this is what I found out and this is that and this is okay so let's help your daughter be the best that she possibly can and let's let's not do this because clearly it says that's not what's super great for someone like your daughter but let's try that and but it takes time You know, it takes time to figure those things out. You can't walk into an IEP meeting and expect the classroom to run the way you all just spent three hours discussing tomorrow. That's unrealistic because you have to remember, there's a lot of other rigid little personalities in there who are students being taught. They can't change on a dime. The classroom can't change on a dime. The teacher can't change on a dime. it, It takes time. I think that ideally, if you can 
if you can get into the school building and get into the classroom and get into talking to the teacher, the special ed teacher, as early as you can, give them time to think about it. Give them time to process it. Give them time to teach their class with your kid in the back of their head so that they can be like, oh, next time we do this assignment, I can't use Apple Jacks. I'm going to have to do something else. You know what I mean? Give them time to think about it. When my daughter started, when Freya started first grade this year, she had a new teacher. They, it's Waldorf, so they do, um, she's going to have the same teacher for the next three years, which is pretty awesome, actually. But yeah, um, that's nice. I realized that she didn't, like, shortly before school, I realized that they do a home visit, and I realized that she didn't know anything about Freya. And I, and then I was just like, oh my God, like, I, for some reason, that's I pink, thought yeah. it would have been, like, passed on. I don't know. I just didn't take on that responsibility. And so then I had like two weeks before school started. So I wrote this really long, involved, detailed letter about the um, potential, the potential uh, characteristics of Prada Willie and how it is with Freya. And um, so I started there and I sent her some resources and we, you know, I'm, we're, you know, we communicate back and forth at times and it's been great. Freya's IEP team is actually really awesome. They're very friendly and open and they want to learn more about her and they're very receptive to what I know about the disorder and so I and I think part of it has been that I've been so like I kind of flood them with information at times and uh, Mm -hmm. so I think that is that is um, a you know a crucial 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 thing to remember that when you are going in as a parent into an IEP be sure that you that you're that the the team is educated about your child's disorder. So absolutely. Absolutely. I've done the same thing, you know, potential things that this involves, but what Aubrey's showing right now that I see, um, her teacher, Aubrey has had the same special ed teacher since she's been in school. And I, I, I knew, I mean, he used to be my colleague and, I knew he would be a wonderful fit for her because she could be as dramatic as she wants and he is going to be as even keel as even keel gets. Uh-huh. And I knew that she could not ruffle his feathers no matter what she did because she will try to wrestle your feathers and get a rise out of you. And I knew that she wouldn't be able to get that out of him and it's worked beautifully. Um, I also feel like it's really important to begin with the end in mind. and. I have the unique opportunity because I've been a teacher in this state. I know what the diploma options are and they've recently changed actually, but I know what the diploma options are for Aubrey. And to be really honest with you, I don't know that she'll be able to get a regular plain Jane diploma when she graduates from high school. And this is very easy for me to say because this is my field and I'm not so brand new to it. It's okay with me if she doesn't. I know that doesn't define her. I know it doesn't mean that she is this or isn't that. She is who she is because she is beautifully and wonderfully made. And a piece of paper that says whether or not she has a diploma from high school means absolutely nothing to me. I also would be concerned that if she If she does get a diploma, that is wonderful. She will have worked really hard and she earns it and she deserves it and and good for her. Knowing how she is and how manipulative she is, I don't want some of those doors opened for her. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you right now, I don't want her to get her driver's license. I don't care if she can. I don't want her to. Uh huh. And that's not in her best interest right now. She's nine. Don't get me wrong. Things can right. change. She can mature. I will revisit that later. But right now, as it sits today, mm-hmm. if I had to predict, I would say I don't want her to get her driver's license because I don't trust her to not drive down to the McDonald's right. every day. Well, and I think that's a hard thing for people to understand. I just had this conversation uh, with Freya's old, her, her kindergarten teacher from last year, we were talking and, uh, and I said something about Freya always, you know, being with us and, and she was kind of surprised, you know, cause Freya for now mm-hmm. is in, is mainstreamed in general education. And she was like, well, I think she's doing great. She's very social. And I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine mm-hmm. that she would have to stay at home. And I'm like, even, even people with this disorder that uh, have, um, you know, typical IQ levels or, you know, they, 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 the few, the food thing is so strong. Like they really need to right. be supervised. And I don't know of any adults with Prader-Willi syndrome that live on their own. I don't think right. that that's even really an option. I don't think so. My but. dad always says, my daddy always says that my husband and I are so lucky because we never have to deal with emptiness. Yes. Isn't that's that what a I say. To have? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I say. Cause yeah. I, you know, I said there is, there is a really a sweet beautifulness to that. And yeah, sometimes it's a little overwhelming. It's a bit daunting sometimes to think about it, but it's also, it's kind of sweet. And it, in some ways yeah. I, I have to worry less about her because I don't have to prepare her to be out in the world on her own. And, oh, you, know. you want to talk about worry less. And I know that you have an older daughter, so you're probably yeah. on the cusp of that as well. I have a dear friend right now who's dealing with a 16 year old daughter. Oh God. <laughs> you know, oh. She's, kind of, she's kind of gotten to the point where she's like, Hey, Man, that prey really is not looking so bad right now. <laughs> she says it all in love. She means she says it in love, and she's not, you know. So I'm like, man, I tell you what, at the way your daughter's treating you right now, I wouldn't trade it. I'm really I'm perfectly fine with this right now. This is great. I lock my pantry, and you go deal deal with that sassy girl. Oh, right. I know. That's yeah. When it's good to put it in perspective. I think I, some people say like you shouldn't compare and I never compare in any, Mm-mm. you know, like it's, I think it's okay to, to compare, to get perspective so that you can find that appreciation for what it is that you do have and what you're working mm-hmm. with. And Absolutely. So one of the things that you had said in your email was about how you don't manipulate the environment too much for your daughter because you know that she needs to learn to live in a non-PWS world. 100%. As a perfect example of that, we, um, I've always felt that way about it. Um, and you don't know where your kid is. You know, obviously with this syndrome, the cognitive functioning level has the potential to be really high or really low and everywhere in between. You don't know what you're dealing with right. until you really get into the throes of it. So um, I have always tried to teach Aubrey as much as I could um what she can and can't have why this is healthy why that that isn't healthy and we have always talked about those types of things a perfect example is we just um 
made plans to go to Orlando for the first week of January. And I don't know when you're publishing this, but it's a Christmas gift to my kids. <laughs> so they don't know about it. But we're going to um, be traveling. And we don't know what – I am not – we have traveled a lot. I mean, I've taken her out of the country. I've taken her all over this part of the country here where we live. But now that she's nine and can almost not have a snack, kind of depending on different nutrition components of what she eats earlier in the day and what she has coming up. And uh-huh. it's, I just keep it on a swing mm-hmm. all the time. And she, I'm, I te- I'm te- trying to teach her how to make healthy choices based on what she's provided, what choices she's given. Now, if she were left on her own, she would eat. I mean, you know, all the carbs and all the sugary and all the whatever. But when she, when we're around, she knows how to make good choices. And she typically tries to make good choices. And she will ask, is this a good choice? Look what I, look what I did, Mom. I put more spinach in my salad instead of all lettuce because spinach has more nutrients than just lettuce. Uh-huh. And, you know, just things like that. Look, Mom, you want my bun? Can I put my bun? This is what her big thing. Can I put my, my bun on your plate so it's not on mine? Aww. Yes, you can. You know, like things like that. She'll order it. She said, I want a cheeseburger with a salad on top and no bun. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, so she's, she's trying. It's not easy. It's not her favorite thing to do. But the more it looks like a lot, the better. So she's like, I want a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of the salad on top of my cheeseburger. So it's her own little way of asking, you know, so that's what I'm trying to do because I know that there's going to come a time and it already has come and it's going to come more often. She's going to be out there without us. And I don't mean because she's living independently. I mean, she's going to be with a babysitter or with, you know, someone else and we're not going to be right there. And I want her to know what her good food choices are and that she's supposed to make those good food choices. I don't trust her to be able to do it independently, but I want her to know so that the precedence is set so that there are no surprises. Uh Does that make sense? Because surprises are something that she doesn't deal well with. Right. No, I think it's great. Those are expectations. Uh huh. And it's good to give them a sense of power. Ownership. Ownership. Yeah. That's huge with her. If she feels like she's in control, that's something I've always done with her since she was really little. I mean, I'd be like, Aubrey, I don't care what you eat. You can have the broccoli or the asparagus. I don't care. You pick. And the more nonchalant, laissez-faire I could be and walk off, the more empowered she is that she gets to pick instead of me telling her. Uh You know what I mean? Like, I've always manipulated her in that way. And it's worked. And it's empowered her. And um, it's helped her have more of a sense of ownership. And it's stopped a lot of meltdowns. A lot of times, that's how I'll stop if I see one brewing or something fixing to happen, I'll be as nonchalant as possible. And almost, if I act almost disgusted with it and be like, whatever, Aubrey, I don't care. You can have this or you can have that. You pick. I don't care. And then sometimes I'll, like, make her think that one of them is a better choice than the other to try and get her to manipulate what she thinks. <laughs> but I always give her options I can live with. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, I absolutely. always give her options that I can live with. 
and then she's fine because she got to pick. And that comes, that goes with food, clothing, where we're going, what we're doing, who sits where in the car. Oh my gosh, that is like a disaster. So if I could drive a motorcycle <laughs> and everybody sat in a line behind me, it'd be better. But it just doesn't work that way. I drive a beast of a car because there's so many of us. But um, anyway, that's, I mean, as long as she thinks she's making decisions and in control, let her be. Uh-huh. I think that's like the number one rule of parenting though, is give them options you can live with. So that yes, for anybody. Um, another, uh, so you also talked about um, your daughter having scoliosis and yes. she was wearing a brace for a while and the, that, you know, or well, was supposed to be wearing a brace and <laughs> that it was, <laughs> it was just a big, a big fight. And I appreciated that you, yeah you were talking about how you had so much that you were already fighting for and that, you know, this yeah. was the time that you were like, you know what? No, I'm not. So I don't know if I just really appreciate that. I don't know if you want to talk about that for a minute or. Sure. Sure. So yeah, that was, Aubrey was diagnosed with scoliosis when she was nine months old. And <clears throat> we knew it was going to be an issue. We worked on core. We worked on strength. We worked on all, you know, everything you're supposed to do. There's a um, physical therapist in Indianapolis whose son has syndrome. Her name is Janice Agarwal. She and I talked and talked and talked. She's wonderful. We, she um, had, I, we had a great physical therapist here who we worked with a lot. And um, I knew that I was doing everything I possibly could in order to strengthen her core to try and keep this from happening. And it just kept happening. And it came to the point where like, she needs a brace. And so we were braced by a doctor in St. Louis. We were braced by two different doctors. We started off in Indy. We were braced by a doctor there and that relationship fizzled. And we went to St. Louis and we were braced by a doctor there. That was too far away. It got to be too much. That was at the end of my mom's disease process. And then we ended up back in Indianapolis with a new endocrinologist and a new spine doctor and all new situations where we still are now. And it's been really good. We are really happy with where we are and, and the way things are going. She did end up having um, to have surgery. Um, Aubrey, fought, Aubrey was supposed to be wearing a brace at night. And then she was supposed to be wearing it, you know, 23 hours a day. And we were doing hypotherapy and we were doing... Um, all the things that they tell you that you're supposed to do. And, you know, you wrestle the brace on her and then it hurts when she's in her car seat and, and she's hot in the summertime and she swims on a swim team and she goes to swimming lessons and she's in the pool every day and the brace is on and the brace is off and the brace is on and the brace is off and the brace is on and the brace is off. She's supposed to be wearing it <laughs> solid 23 hours a day and she hates the thinking thing and it hurts and you put it on her and you put clothes on over it and you put her in a straight jacket and put her in the bed and you wake up in the morning and it's off. And, you know, the doctors are like, well, let me talk to you a little bit about behavior. I'm like, I have a cotton oh. degree in there. Don't even go there. You know, it's just, no, 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 no. And I'm not bribing her. And no, we're not using food as a reward. And no, we're not. No. Like it was so obvious. And I just finally came to the conclusion that, you know what? I chose to not just because of who she is and how she is and physically and emotionally and personality wise and because of I knew I have a really good friend a childhood friend who is a spine surgeon if I could even tell you all the intricacies of all these like divine moments that we have had 
like I bumped into him. He is a spine surgeon in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had a class reunion, and I had just met with Aubrey's scoliosis doctor like three days before, and I had a picture fresh on my phone of Aubrey's x-ray. I mean, I haven't seen this guy in 18 years, <laughs> and I'm sitting there next to him at dinner, and I was like, oh, wow, wow we got to talk, and um, <laughs> just, there's been so many divine moments like that where I know that it's just divine intervention, and the way we ended up with her spine surgeon, it's, it's crazy, you wouldn't even believe, but anyway, so I came to the conclusion that I was going to continue to strengthen her core instead of, Aubrey got very lazy using her core because she would hang on her, on her brace when she right. would wear her brace. You know, it's the same concept as a person who's on crutches when they put all their weight on their armpits in their crutches. That's what she was doing in her brace. And I was finally, I'm not, I have zero fight left in me. I'm trying to keep my mom alive. I'm trying to keep these three children alive. I'm trying to get, I can't, I can't fight with you. Just take the cotton picking thing off. I don't care. I know you're going to have surgery one day. All this break, I finally got doctors to tell me, you know what? She's going to have to have surgery. All we're doing is trying to prevent it. And so um, once I got that verbal confirmation, I was like, I'm not fighting for an extra six months to extend surgery just six more months. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just wasn't. Anyway, that's what we did, and that's how we did it, and it turned out fine for us, and it wasn't for everybody, and I understand that, but it did for us. And um, so she ended up having oh, – okay, so we had an appointment with a physician at a hospital in Indianapolis who said, yeah, we're going to do the surgery. We're going to do it like this. Do it, da, 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 da. We'll put in these magic rods. They're growing, blah, 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 blah. And I cannot explain why, but I was uncomfortable with him. I wasn't uncomfortable with the procedure. I was not uncomfortable with the hardware. I was uncomfortable with him and his bedside manner. And we were in, we were almost four hours from here where, where we live. We were north of Indianapolis in the Carmel Westfield area at a basketball tournament for my son's travel basketball team from here in Hobsot. Okay. We're far away from home. Right. And we had, we were there for the tournament and we were leaving. So when we travel on weekends like that for basketball, my husband and I find a Catholic church and we go to mass. We were coming out of mass and this lady had caught my eye during communion because she had on scrubs and I could tell it was a children's hospital based on the embroidery, but I couldn't read it. And she had pink hair. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. How fun at a hospital, at a children's hospital, they could have pink hair and pink breast cancer awareness. Like I'm just conjuring up this wonderful picture of this stranger in my head. Okay. Uh -huh. During communion when I'm supposed to be praying and I wasn't. But um, <laughs> so anyway, it's snowing and it's cold and it's miserable and mass is over and everybody like puts their head down and is running to their car because it's those big, chunky, wet snowflakes. And it's just blowing and we're out in the middle of the country and it's flat and the wind's just whipping across and it was just miserable. And that lady and I ran into each other physically on the sidewalk <laughs> and it caught me by surprise. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm talking to you. Um, I said, my daughter's getting ready to have surgery in a couple of months in Indianapolis. And I just hope that she gets a nurse who looks as fun and spunky as you. And she goes, Oh, what kind of high surgery is she having? And I told her and she goes, Oh, who's doing it? Dr. So-and-so. And I go, mm -hmm. 
And she said, oh, Dr. So-and-so, she went through a list of several doctors, and it turned out that she worked at a different hospital than the one that Aubrey's doctor worked at. And she goes, oh, you're having it done there? And I go, yeah. And she goes, oh, okay, well, good luck. See you later. I won't be your nurse. I work at, um, I work at Peyton Manning's Children's Hospital. See ya. And that was the end of it. And we got in the car, and I feverishly started writing down the names of those doctors that she was rattling through. I called their office, got in to see them. Long story short, one of those doctors ended up doing her surgery because the physician who I was scheduled with, I mean, we had a, we had a surgery date scheduled. And wow. the physician who ended up doing her surgery said, do you realize that he's going to cut her from her spine around her side to her belly button? Take her diaphragm out and tether that down and then put her diaphragm back? He's like, that's oh not even the, the surgery. Oh my gosh, the surgery that he was explaining to me that this physician was going to do is not what that physician had explained to me. He got the pre-op notes from that doctor. He's he's telling me what that doctor didn't tell me. Does that make sense? Yeah. God, that's so anyway. Why would, oh. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. Hey, I'm telling you, divine intervention. I bumped into this lady in the snow coming out of church because she had pink hair and I talked to her. Right. That's why I switched <laughs> that's doctors. So I switched doctors, I switched hospitals, I switched, and it has been a wonderful situation ever since. Oh, good. I, I know. Aubrey had, um, she ended up having spine surgery. She had the rods placed. She actually had hardware, hardware failure, um, and within a month had to go back in. One of the screws came out of the bone, and it had to be Ooh. reinserted, which happens sometimes. She didn't complain. She wasn't it was the whole other story um but um <laughs> it's really humbling it's really humbling when you go in to check on your daughter at night and you're like what is that on her back and you might have had three or four glasses of wine full pours and you're like what is that on her back and you're like oh that looks like that looks like the end of a shotgun shell. Why in the hell does that? And my husband goes, don't touch that. It's a rod. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it was. And um, oh. I call, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I call her, the doctor on call at the office, you know, in Indy. And they're like, is she in pain? Is she okay? I was like, no, she's sleeping like a baby. They were like, well, you need to come up here. And I was like, well, I guess I'll sober up first, but okay. That's a gut <laughs> check. When you can't run your kid to the hospital and oh. it's three hours away. You know, they were like, let her sleep through the night. Just be here in the morning when we open. We'll put her in, keep her NPO. She still had to be NPO, you know, for pre-op. You know what I mean? For so long. They're like, let her sleep through the night. Um, just we'll put her, we'll bump her first on a surgery schedule and we'll go in and fix it. It won't be a big deal. And I'm thinking, big deal. I got, <laughs> wait a second. But they were right. It ended up, it, it was fine. It was fine. I had all night long to eat a bunch of bread and get us, and my husband drove us up to Indy and it was fine. And they did the surgery. She was in and out real quick. And we've not had any problems since. We go back to Indy every, couple of weeks we actually go Monday and um they extend her rods with the little magnet in the office it takes maybe five or six minutes and then we go shop and then we come home you go every it's, couple of weeks no we go every eight to ten weeks okay oh well, still that's that's a lot but will it always be that or will it um will you no so Aubrey's 
kind of, so most girls finish their linear growth between like 12 and 14. Okay. I mean, do you remember when you kind of quit growing? Yeah. Um, they, and so once you finish your linear growth, you don't grow anymore. And Aubrey, uh, oh, that's obvious. But um, anyway, so these magic rods come in two different lengths. And Aubrey is in the length that once her rods are fully extended, hopefully we can fully extend her rods and she'll be fine and she's done growing and the rods just stay. If she has problems with it, the doctor said he might take these rods out and put in fixed rods, you know, but because she doesn't have to grow anymore. Uh-huh. But you don't want to put fixed rods in until your trunk's finished growing or else your right. organs and everything keep growing, but your length of your trunk doesn't, and then you don't have space. Okay, well, That's thank goodness we for That's... science and <laughs> Western medicine. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, we're new to mm-hmm. the scoliosis thing. Uh, she's just starting to show some signs of it, so we're doing some therapies and... Uh, yeah strengthen 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 yeah all you can I can tell you this too this is um I don't have any I've not ever read any published peer-reviewed articles or anything that say this but based on my personal experience with the surgeries that I had with my breast cancer and then watching Aubrey through her surgeries and inpatient stay and watching my mom through her surgery and her inpatient stay I can tell you that the stronger you are and the more tone you are and the more flexibility you have going into any kind of surgery, the better off you're going to be on the other side. Uh huh. I don't care if you're going in for a nose job, the better core strength you have going into it and Mm. the more flexibility and mobility you have going into it, the better off you're going to be as far as having to get up, as far as having to walk, having balance, being able to, all of those things are so critical. In order to get out of the hospital, you have to pass gas or have a bowel movement depending on what type of surgery you had. You know, if you can't get up and move around, your body's not going to start doing that. Right. And if you can't get up and start moving around because you were weak to begin with going in there, you're just climbing the hill starting down lower at the bottom. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if she'll ever have to have surgery or not, but if she does, I can tell you right now, you'll never regret, you know, exercises, strengthening, core, any of that stuff that you can do to help with that ahead of time. One more question, which I feel like just from talking with you, maybe I know the answer. Whenever you have a moment of weakness or feeling overwhelmed, I I started to ask, like, do you? (laughs) Do you ever? I mean, but you're human. (laughs) Um, yes. where do you pull strength from? What, what helps my, my faith? 100% my faith. 100%. I get quiet. I get alone and I spend as much time as I can with God. I can do some great like heart prayers. Sometimes it's as simple. Sometimes I don't even have the strength to pray, but I always think if I can just whisper Jesus's name, I will feel better. And ultimately I do. It can be as simple as that or as intricate as, as, you know, praying, praying the rosary and, and really dwelling on that, um, quiet time at home alone. And you know what? It's not always about praying to tell God what I want. Sometimes it's just about being quiet 
and being still and listening for him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a two-way street for me. It's a two-way street. It's not just me telling him what I want. It's him coming back at me. And sometimes I feel like I know what it is he wants because of like a thought that pops in my head or because of something that I read, you know, soon after or because of something that someone says to me or because I run into a lady with pink hair in the parking lot of the church or, I mean, just, it's not always, it's not like God going, Hey, Laurie, (laughs) I mean, it's not like that. You know what I mean? But it's, it's finding him in my day to day and letting him, you know, the sooner I figured out that this isn't my rodeo, it's his. And I can have all these wonderful ideas in my head of what I want and what I want to do and what I think is best. But the, but once I relinquish what I want and let him be more of the, the driver and, and letting him show me what I want, everything goes so much smoother. It's more palatable. It, it's there's less resistance and less friction and the yucky things don't hurt so bad and I'm able to get through them it that's 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 it and and I couldn't do it without my husband Mm -hmm. and I like to drink wine (laughs) (laughs) yes Yes. oh all right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I hope to uh, drink some wine with you someday and get our <laughs> together. Call me when you come home. 